Hey, this is Brandon Laws. Welcome to Transform Your Workplace. Today's episode is brought to you by Zenium HR. Learn more about Zenium's complete HR plus payroll solution at zeniumhr.com. Hey, and don't forget, we've got until the end of August, you could sign up for the What People Want From Work survey. This is a free employee engagement survey that Zenium runs every year. We do all the work. All you have to do is send the survey link out to your employees. We do the rest and we'll give you a customized report based on the responses from your employees. Go sign up at zenimhr.com. And the link is in the show notes. All right, today's guest is Charles Price. Charles is the author of Rewiring the White Collar Mind. I really love this conversation. He was open, vulnerable about his struggles. He is a very successful attorney and as most professions, it seems like nowadays, they're getting burned out. And he talks about rewiring the white collar mind and what that means and has a lot to do with stress management, has to do with gratitude. And he even talks about sobriety. So we're going to dive into all of that and a whole lot more. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Charles as much as I did. Enjoy today's conversation. It's a pleasure to have you on Transform Your Workplace. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Brandon. It's great to be here. Your book, Rewiring the White Collar Mind, Transcending Professional Training to Achieve True Life Balance and Contentment. Very personal book, a lot of great sound advice. And in the book, you wrote that the skills and lessons that make us professionally successful are not designed to help us lead happy, balanced lives. Why do you believe this? What led you to believe this? I first started thinking about this when I was going to talk to some law students, um, and I had in, in mind a talk that was called something like things you don't learn in law school. Everybody goes through a professional school, becomes keenly aware very quickly that there are things you don't learn in law school. And so I was going to go talk to the law students about that. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that not only were there gaps in our professional training, but there were all sorts of ways in which our professional training actually steers us away from the things that we're going to need to live contented and balanced lives. What I told the law students very early on when I started giving these talks was, think about the way you're learning here. Think about what your curriculum is. You're being taught to study precedent, which is looking backward, and you're taught to strategize, which is looking forward, but you're never taught to live right now. I would guess that what I just said is the first time that topic has ever been mentioned in law school. And yet we all know intuitively as human beings that that's an important aspect of, of being contented. So I assume everybody here went to law school because they wanted to have some kind of happy life. Are you really learning things that will enable you to do that? And if you're not learning them or you're learning things that are the antithesis of that, don't you need to take charge of rewiring your own mind to get to the place that you had in mind when you first signed up for a profession? I'd mentioned that this book is really personal. You got a lot of stories about like what led you to thinking we need to rewire our brains. But if you could look at when you left law school and you'd been in your career, maybe early on, and then you have sort of reflected backwards, what sort of blind spots did you have along the way? My, my biggest blind spot 
was I've always been a, a good student and a good learner. And so I kind of responded to the inputs that I believed my environment was giving me. So my law firm is paying people a lot of money to work a bunch of hours. Okay, I've got to go do that. If if you're being taught to sort of winning is everything and you got to win every conversation and win every exchange in a letter and so on. Okay, I got to do that. That's what's being rewarded and so on. So my biggest blind spot was the failure to understand that there is both an outer world and an inner world, and that the most important one, the one where we truly live our lives, is the inner world. And the outer world is important as sort of a workplace, a playground, where we express our inner selves, but it's the it's the inner selves that, that matter in the end. And I would look ahead and I'd see these lawyers who were frankly, the age I am now in my late 60s, and I'd realized they've got things wired professionally, but they're just miserable. And that, that doesn't look like a great path. So what am I going to do about that? It took me a long time to figure it out, but at least I started asking that question. In the book, you, you wrote a, a little passage that says, to be happy, you must be successful. To be successful, you must work hard. To work hard is to be miserable. Therefore, to be happy, you must be miserable. Unpack that for me. Well, yeah, I call that the great syllogism. And I wanted to put it on paper because when you see it in print, you say, well, that's nuts. And yet every single line of that is something that almost all professionals believe at some level, except maybe the last one, which is manifestly self-contradictory. So we say, well, that can't be right. But the others, the perniciousness is in the, is in the premises. So you look at that syllogism, you say, where, where does this go wrong? Well, I think the problem with the syllogism is at every stage, frankly, but first of all, is it true that to be happy, you must be successful? Certainly that's probably true, depending on how you define terms, but what does success mean? Does it mean just making a lot of money or does a successful life mean you've got positive connections and you're close with your family and friends and you do volunteer work and so on. So yes, at some level, that's probably true, but you got to define terms. To be successful, you must work hard. That's probably true too at some level in some ways, but what does it mean to work hard? I explore this in the book and I say, look, you've got to think about is working hard, just working a million hours and burning yourself out and pulling all-nighters and you're a zombie at the end, or does it mean intense focused effort with an intention to do your very best? That's what I think it is. So that's true, but again, define terms. To work hard is to be miserable. That's a real important one because I think all of us kind of believe that at some level. It's like I have to retire with dignity. I have to work hard really now and I'll be miserable now so I can be happy later. We all kind of buy into some kind of thing like that. And my view is that you can learn to be content, engaged, present, focused, in any circumstance, however stressful. And that's what you should strive for. I actually, I write in the area of what some people call life balance, but I actually struggle against that term a little bit because the, there are some problems with that term as well. It kind of implies that work life is terrible, your home life is great, and you ought to balance out your terrible work life yeah. with your great home life. And I say it's more important to sort of micro balance, you know, to make sure that you are depositing as much as you're withdrawing, but at every moment throughout the day that you're enjoying, you know, little moments of joy and connection and engagement as they come and not saying, well, this is all totally worthless unless I fill in the blank, win my case, make a lot of money, get that promotion. So we tend to minimize all of our wins and successes while at the same time we obsess about our defeats and mistakes. So our bank balance inevitably over time gets radically overdrawn. It's a good point you're making about the life balance. 
I've always felt, I've always liked the term integration, like work-life right. integration, because that means that like you can do one or the other, but you need to do a hundred percent of focus. And, but I think there's ways to, to not be miserable in both of those states. Like your point about work completely sucks and you're miserable. And then the life that you live on the personal side is the happy part. And about, I don't, I don't like that. I don't, I don't want to buy into that. Cause I think there's a way to be happy at work and doing things that you love and being present in the moment, like you're just describing. But I mean, it sounds like you've done a lot of introspection. How did you figure out that you had an inner and outer self? Like most people wouldn't come to that conclusion. Like how'd you get there? Well, I tell the story in the book about going to a psychiatrist in Santa Barbara when I was in college and reporting to him that I had this bad headache for a couple of years. And I thought, because I was very outer directed at the time, that I, I didn't know what the problem was. I literally had no idea. But I thought, if you can just give me a pill or a massage or something and make it go away, then I can go succeed, which is like my big thing in life. And so he talked to me for a while, as a good psychiatrist would. It's like, well, what's going on in your life? Like, well, everything's basically fine, except my stepdad died and my girlfriend left me for another guy. And, you know, all these terrible things. And before that, my parents had gotten divorced, which led to the stepdad situation. And he was a great Jeez. guy, but he didn't stay around long. So a lot of stress. So as he heard this, as you know, any rational adult would say is, you know, boy, this sounds like there's a lot of stress in your life is like, I don't see that. I don't, I don't really know what you're talking about. It's like, I dealt with those things. I moved on. No problem. So he did some hypnosis with me and I ended up basically just sobbing for about an hour in his office, wow. which was kind of a, a wake up call for me. Yeah, yeah. So that was a dramatic introduction to the concept of inner and outer life. But then I went to, you know, a very competitive law school where it's, it's all sort of outer life. They're not talking to you about how are you feeling and how are you dealing with this and so on. So it was that insight stayed with me but it kind of came and went until really in my 40s, I started to think much more about the importance of my inner life, which is about the time I stopped drinking. I started drinking pretty heavily in my 30s and I just got to kind of a crossroads and I said, I don't see this ending well, so we got to do something. I think what motivates us drives us in a lot of ways. And, and throughout your career, I'm sure you had different motivating factors for why you worked hard, why you immersed yourself in your business. Throughout your career, did you check in with yourself though? to see what was truly like what you're passionate about, what motivated you. Once you really determined this inner and outer self, I don't know when that moment was, but did you ever like check in regularly and maybe encourage listeners, like how could they do that themselves objectively? Yes, for sure. It's a great question. In my case, and then I'll think if there's a way to generalize this, mm -hmm. but I just was gobsmacked by how much I fell in love with my first child. And then of course my second and third. And I just, I, I just couldn't believe this wellspring of emotion that was within me. It's like, I need to do whatever it takes to be the best parent that I can for this person. And I would certainly lay down my life for them, but am I willing to do an even more difficult thing, which is to lay down my preconceptions. And I realized over time that I had to do that and I could do it. And really, I would say that my emotional development has been sort of a process of me growing up alongside my three girls. I tried to parent them consciously and intentionally and so on. And I, we're all very close now. And I think they would say that, you know, I did a good job and certainly as, as good as I was capable of, but I had a long way to go. And that was really my big motivation. So, you know, I would say, as you think uh, back on, on what, why did you get into your profession? What's most important to you? Find something that's bigger than yourself. Find something that's outside yourself. Because so many people say, my motivation is to get this amount of money, this promotion, this job, this position, this recognition. And in my life and my own experience and looking around at others, I've just never seen that work. 
I've seen lawyers that get hooked on their accomplishments and it, you know, they might as well be a, you know, a junkie in the alley in, in terms of it doesn't satisfy him, it doesn't fill him up. It's like, you know, I literally heard a lawyer once complaining about he was voted best lawyer of the mm. year in like multiple categories. It's like, well, why did I get those four and not the fifth? It's just never enough. You're right. It's kind of like a, yeah, like a junkie. It's like this rush of dopamine or whatever mm. chemical is running through our body about the busyness, the success, the glory, all of those things. And I think like we run into this trap of wanting to be busy all the time and wear it like a badge of honor. I mean, heck, I was talking to my kids yesterday. Both of them were bored out of their mind for whatever reason, because they can't sit still. They're 11 and nine years old. They can't sit still because they're connected all the time. Like we, like we as working professionals are now, there's like live chat and email dings and social media. It's, it's nonstop. And I think that's where we fall into a trap. We can't be present. We can't sit still. We can't provide the space to critically think, be creative, those sort of things. So how can we fall out of that trap and grab control of our professional lives so that we can be present and be creative and be all these things that we need to be? Why I wrote the book and why I say that we do need to rewire the white collar mind. So I talk about all the things that I think we need to rewire. And some of the most important ones are learning how to overcome our desire for control, how to listen, connections, yeah. emotional intelligence, stress, fear, and anxiety, sensitivity, sobriety, and, and others. So I kind of went through and I thought, what are all the things I can think of where it's important to human happiness but it's something where our professions either don't encourage it or actively promote some other agenda. And I think in the big picture, you, you need to develop the ability to be skeptical about the messages you're getting, however powerful they might be. You talk about sort of the attention economy, I think is what yeah. we were discussing a couple of moments ago. And that is carefully curated to get our attention, get eyeballs on the screen and to outrage us. But we have a choice. Are we gonna watch? How are we gonna respond? Are we going to say, well, there's probably more to the story? It is a process of consciously reclaiming control over your life because the messages aren't getting any less explicit and any less powerful, but we still have a choice. Famously, Viktor Frankl, a, a Holocaust survivor, yeah. said they could take away everything in the concentration camp except my ability to think my own thoughts. And certainly if he and that utmost of hellish circumstances could realize that, then the rest of us can too. Man's Search for Meaning, great book. You had talked about listening. Uh, that was one of the things you listed off. I personally think it's an underutilized skill. And I don't think we're taught that in schools. Do you believe that? Is there a way that we can develop that muscle, the listening? <laughs> what do you do? Yeah, 100%. I believe that it's not taught uh, unless you're lucky. And it's one of the most important life hacks that really is pretty simple. I'm not saying it's easy for everybody, but once you start practicing it, especially if you pay real close attention, it's so easy just to be quiet, just sit there and do nothing. That ought to be something most people can do. When I say do nothing on the outside, you're not talking, you're not interrupting, you're not thinking about what you're going to say, you're not formulating your response, but you're really trying to absorb what does this human being have to say to me that I'm engaged with right now. So first of all, it's just be silent, absorb what they have to say, and then see if you can find some way to respond that moves the conversation along rather than just gives your take on it. Why do you think that? Tell me more about that. How did you come to that conclusion? What are you reading about that? Um, as opposed to, well, I saw something that disagrees with that, so you're wrong and everything. And, and the reason it's so powerful is we're all wired for connection. The primary way we connect with people is 
verbal. I guess there's some studies that say, you know, body language as well, but you know, there's a body language aspect to listening as well. You're smiling and nodding at me and that makes me feel perfectly listened to and connected. So that's important. Anyway, so we, we connect with other people. That's super important to us. And listening is a primary way we do that in the first instance, but also for professionals, it signals, I might not know everything. And, and clients love the humility and the modesty of that. Because unless you're truly prepared to back it up of, I know everything, I've, I've seen lawyers try to do that, it generally falls apart at some level. So when you say to a client, well, I don't know as much about this as you do, because it's your world. So tell me more about that. Clients love that. In my field, we talk about stress and burnout a lot. I think stress is unavoidable. In fact, it can, stress is good for us because we can grow from it. But... It can be deadly if taken in huge doses and it's not managed correctly. You know, throughout your career, I mean, you, you just described that therapist session that you had where you, you were ended up sobbing for an hour. You made a breakthrough there, obviously, and you probably went on some stress reducing tactics after that. But were there other points in your life where you realized the stress was just too much? It was overflowing and you had no way to control it. Walk me through that. And what did you do to get out of that? For sure. I've had moments in my life where the stress was just too much. And, you know, sometimes life forces a solution on you. Throughout my 30s, basically, I tried to numb out primarily with alcohol, but also with overwork and things. And I, I just realized that was going down a very bad path. So I learned some things that enabled me to quit essentially cold turkey with some help with supplements and so on. And I tell this story in the book. But it's fair to say, and I think any person who's recovering from a substance issue will tell you that does not magically take away all the stress in your life. It just makes you more, in some cases, more aware of it. So yeah. in some cases, it's, it's a more intense feeling. So how do we deal with stress in the big picture? I've tried to cultivate an attitude of gentleness towards stress because anything that you resist and fight, it tends to just increase its power over you. So I accept the fact that my job is stressful. If it weren't stressful, I probably wouldn't get paid a lot of money to do it because almost anybody could do it. So in some ways I can be grateful for, you know, the fact that I have this stress. And I also realize that so much stress comes from that inner voice. And we, we have power over what the inner voice says, but we often don't exercise that power. We go to the worst, most critical place, a place where from which we would never discipline our children, for example, if we were trying to be loving and gentle, but we just go to this place of just pounding on ourselves. I did an in-person seminar with a bunch of lawyers and I asked everybody, can somebody volunteer to tell us about a, an embarrassing situation? And a friend of mine, good guy, good friend, raised his hand. He said, well, all right, I'll go. He says, I've had some interrogatories sitting on the corner of my desk for two weeks. Haven't got to him. I feel terrible. I feel irresponsible. I'm ashamed. Blah, blah, blah. I said, okay, thanks, Mick. I appreciate you telling me that story. I said, now let me ask you this. Before you told that story, how do you think I thought about you? He said, well, I think you probably thought I was a pretty good lawyer. I said, yeah, I think you're a great lawyer. Now, let me ask you this. Now that I've heard that story, how do you think I feel about you? He said, I don't know. I said, yes, you do. He said, yeah, you feel the same. Yeah, I feel the same. Okay. <laughs> My attitude about you doesn't swing wildly up and down, depending on what set of interrogatories is or is not sitting on the corner of your desk. But we do that to ourselves is sitting there. I'm the worst. This is the kind of thing I always do. Why do I do this? Why can't it be more responsible? We just have this voice that piles on. Mm -hmm. So there's the stress of the outside world, but then we punch ourselves three and four times extra. And that's the thing that we can control. When you, you're telling that story and I'm like, gosh, I, I've got, it's like the imposter syndrome, right? Like I, I will sit on weekends 
you know, not working and I'll be like, I need to be working. I need to be doing something. I need to be making progress towards my goals. I need to be doing this. I need to be that. That voice in our head is super powerful. And it's, if not controlled, it can be pretty damaging. Well, that's right, Brandon. And, and think about, you know, that's kind of what the book is about. And it's why the professional brain needs to be rewired because all of our kind of environmental and organizational messages speak very directly to that voice. Just as the media have kind of learned how to get into our innermost, most primitive part of our brain and kind of stir it up and make us afraid <laughs> and angry, our professions have taught us how to feel like I should be working now and I should be making more and I'm not making, you know, doing enough. And we need to be aware that those messages are, messages are being sent and we have total control over the extent to which we adopt them and listen to them. If this is helping my life, great. If it's motivating me right now, fine. If it's just stressing me out, it's a lovely day out. My kids need to be played with, you know, why not? Thank you for sharing your battles with alcohol. I know a lot of people are probably struggling with substance abuse in some level. I haven't talked about it on this podcast at all. And I, I just appreciate you opening up about that. Do you think it's a common problem amongst white collar workers to, to have some sort of substance abuse? I don't know if you have data behind that, but just hoping maybe you can share a little bit about that and how you can help like encourage people to get out of that. Well, definitely. The statistic that I, I know for sure is that about 20% of lawyers self-report as having a problem with drugs or alcohol. So the actual number probably is a little bit higher than that just because of the way those numbers work. And uh, lawyers tend to be at the high end of that scale, but certainly you could figure that a significant portion of other professions do as well. My dad worked for Sears his whole life. He ended up being a Sears store manager, and then he managed a mall and all this stuff. And he developed a very significant problem with alcohol, and it ultimately contributed to his untimely death. So some of it's genetic with me. What I would encourage people to do is say, if you have ever asked if you have a problem, or if somebody has ever said to you, you might have a problem, you might have a problem. And it's, it's worth thinking about and talking with somebody that you totally trust and, and just asking, you know, is there an issue here? And the second thing I'll say is that I, I really couldn't quit until I got to a position of not feeling so ashamed about it. I learned that the way my body reacts to alcohol is it creates essentially like an opiate, which, which is highly addictive. And it's a, it was an experience that other people around me, if they weren't problem drinkers, didn't have. They could have one or two drinks and then stop. No problem. Mm -hmm. I, I can no more have, well, have one or two drinks than you could have one or two potato chips if you were starving. This <laughs> is like, I can have zero. <laughs> zero or Don't give me the one or two stuff. And, but I realized it was like literally a physical craving, mm. uh, you know, much like if a, you have a five pack a day smoker, they can't go down to two cigarettes a day. They can, right. they can quit and then they're, you know, it's hard, but they can do it, but they can't, they can't moderate down to a very, very small level. And I always thought, well, everybody else can do it. Why can't I do it? I must have terrible willpower or just be a weak person or something. So it helped me to kind of literally understand the physiology behind it. But I also just kind of dug deep and said, I can't be there the way I want to be there for my family yeah. if I'm ill-tempered and buzzed and not present. And that's just not okay with me. So I gathered the resources to get it figured out. And I would encourage others to do so because there's a clarity you get. It's not like all your problems go away, but there's a clarity you get and a sense of self-respect that I wouldn't trade anything for. I mean, you talk about being present a lot. That's like, like sober will help you be present because what I've, I don't know where I heard this quote, but it's almost like not being sober is like, it's a time sucker. It's like, it's stealing time from you. Like you're 
sort of time traveling into the future because you're numbing everything that's happening in the moment. It's unbelievable. Right. At a psychological or some people might prefer the word spiritual at, at that kind of level, that's sort of the purpose. It, it, right. it's, it's to take you away from where you are now. If you were perfectly engaged and contented with, you know, where you are, you wouldn't need to be buzzed and numbed out typically. So it took me a while to, to realize that because I had gotten to a point where it wasn't even that it made me feel great. It was just like I had to kind of drink to maintain, you know, the body's desire for it. That's a pretty dangerous place to be. And it only yeah. goes down from there. So I, I kind of looked at my dad's situation. and I said, you know, that's the ghost of Christmas future. So didn't look that great. So yeah. I would encourage others to at least start by being honest with yourself. Yeah. If you can say, right, there's no issue, then there may be no issue. My, my wife can have a drink or two every once in a while, totally not an issue. And it's perfectly fine with me, but other people have an issue and they basically know they have an issue. Yeah. You'd mentioned like the self-awareness is really the first step in that process, but, and then you gathered resources. What were just maybe a few of those resources that you relied on to get out of that? I will say I've had very close friends and family members who've done 12 step programs and, and that's been very successful and life-changing for them. That wasn't really a part of my path, but I totally endorse that for people for whom that works. My breakthrough was actually a book called Seven Weeks to Sobriety. And I think it was put out by, I had some affiliation with the Hazelden Clinic. And that's where they talked about this kind of physical wiring that I had in my body. And you take a quiz, like when you drink, do you feel this way? And do you feel that way? And mm. like, oh, yes, 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 yes. So it's like, well, you're wired for alcoholism, basically. Wow. And they said, it's going to be hard for you because you're, you're not only going to lose your sort of mechanism of, of happiness, but your body is going to rebel and it's going to feel terrible because just because of the withdrawal. So the purpose of the book was to give you like literally like maybe 25, 30 supplements a day, something like that tablets. And this will really help with this thing with your liver and that thing with your whatever. So I just accepted the advice and took it. And I, I do think it helped. It kind of, yeah. you know, helped with the cravings and everything, but you've got to just completely rewire your mind and there was a time for months afterwards, I couldn't even walk through the liquor department of the store. It was just like, that was my happy place. <laughs> and I, I can't go there. I gotta like stay over here and meet and Jesus, you know? <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, thanks for sharing that. I appreciate it. You talk about gratitude in the book, and I think that is helpful for rewiring the brain. I've done a lot of reading about gratitude. What's your thought on just being grateful and how do you practice gratitude on a regular basis and how does it rewire our brain? I keep a little gratitude journal, nothing fancy, but every day or so, I try to write down something for which I'm grateful during the day, just a little physical practice. And it makes me, I realize at the end of the day that if I didn't do this kind of journaling, I, I might not remember these things, but I, I go back and I think, that's true, that happened. And that was a small thing, but I enjoyed that or I appreciate that. And I think what it does is it further encourages us not to go to this place of, I'll be happy when, the receding horizon. It encourages us to say, there are things in my life right now that are working great, that if they were taken away, I'd really miss them. You know, if I, I developed some health problem, that'd be a pretty big challenge. So the fact that I don't have that health problem is something to be grateful for. So just the fact that we're in generally good health, we have good relationships. There's so many things to be grateful for. And we just don't take the time to remember that because our culture, our economy, even I think our human wiring teaches us to be discontented. I think our ancestors had to be sort of discontented just so they could stay alive. They just yeah. kind of sat around in the cave, you know, they're dead. Okay. But but now it's like the but the consumer economy, it's like 
every everything you see on TV says you should not be satisfied with what you have. Yeah. You need XYZ product, pill, trip, whatever. And so I think it's very important to rebel against that and say, hang on, I've got so much in my life to be grateful for. I'm basically content, content where I am. That's a highly revolutionary act. Charles, you're a lawyer. So make your closing argument for why we need to rewire our brain as we close out this conversation. Well, I, I called the book Rewiring the White Collar Mind because I do think it needs to be rewired, but I don't think it needs to be replaced or negated. I think there are many things that we professionals and we white collar workers can benefit from in terms of our professional training. We have been taught a work ethic. We've been taught how to focus on an issue and think about it critically and many, many other things. So I just think we need to take all the benefits we've been given them and kind of consciously rewire them in order to serve ourselves as much as they can, because that's the piece that was never taught in my professional school. And from everything I know, the same is true for other professional schools. So we need to take responsibility for our own lives and for the messages we're giving ourselves. And in my experience, everything else works out pretty well from there. Charles, thank you for the conversation the the vulnerability i really appreciate the book has a lot of personal stories too so thank you for writing a, a book like that where can people learn more about you connect with you if you're open to that and anything else you want to share definitely so the book is rewiring the white collar mind available on amazon and all formats. I'd be even doing an audible version that'll be out shortly. Great. And I have a website, charlespriceesquire.com, charlespriceesq.com. And that's got an email address where people can reach me. My guest today has been Charles Price. Charles, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Brendan. I've really enjoyed it. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed are the guest's own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of ZenMHR or the host, Brandon Laws. The material and information presented on Transform Your Workplace is for general information and educational purposes only. ZenMHR or the host, Brandon Laws, does not necessarily endorse any guest, their business, or any organization they represent. Discretion is advised. Please work with a trusted advisor to find a custom approach that fits your organization's needs.